Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. Before we get to Austin Fisher, the author of the new book, what's the name of it? Faith in the Shadows. That's right, Avery. It's Faith in the Shadows. We'll get to Austin Fisher talking about that book in just a second. But first, let me tell you about the Missions Resource Network. Avery, do you feel personally called to disciple making? I have no idea what that means. Does your church need help to enhance its missions program? I don't know. Well, if yes was your answer to either of those questions, Missions Resource Network can help. Now, this global ministry provides training and coaching connections with international partners and can position you for success as you embrace God's calling. Now, let me tell you about this organization, Avery. If you decide you want to be a missionary, you know what that is? Um, it's a person who travels places. So yeah, and tells stuff. people about... God. Yeah, exactly. If you're one of them, Missions Resource Net- Network can train you. Now, if you're a church that helps support missionaries, you know what a church does like that? You know who whose church does that? Our Westover. church. Yeah, Westover. We do that. And so this is an organization that can help churches like ours with our missions programs. And... Um, plenty other things. So to learn more about Missions Resource Network and some of the great work they're doing around the Mediterranean Rim um, with many of the asylum seekers and refugees, uh, go to mrnet.org. Now, without further ado, let's get to Austin Fisher. Actually, you know, I went to that elders retreat last weekend. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Austin came over and we recorded this right before the uh, elders retreat began. That's cool. Yeah. Anything you want to say to everyone? No. I guess buy my dad's book. Oh, that's a great suggestion, Avery. All right, friends. Welcome back to the show. Today, we are in Belton. Is this Belton, Texas that we're in? Belton, Salado suburb, yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, And we are with Austin Fisher. Good to be here. Vista? Yeah, Vista Community Church. And uh, so, try to get you in the podcast for a long time. Finally Allegedly. got you. And to make this happen, I literally had to drive up to where you live. Technically correct. Yeah. And do you feel like all of your requirements, I know you had a long rider that I had to uh, follow to the, to the very smallest detail. Do you feel like all those things have been fully taken care of? Uh, yeah, we're doing this interview in Luke's bedroom at a retreat center, <laughs> which was the first requirement. So yeah, I mean, we're off to a great start. Th- this might be the creepiest podcast. It is strange. This in our church, we talk about being kid safe, um, like to make sure like you're on the up and up, and like yes. I don't feel like this podcast would pass our no. kid safe no. codes. So definitely not. Um, there is one window that's open, so I think there's a little. Anyway, it just um, but it's it's great to be in your neck of the woods. Yeah, it's good to have you, man. It's been a long time coming. Yeah, yeah, and I want to talk to you years ago. You had a book, uh, "Young, Restless, and No Longer Reformed." How mm-hmm. close is that title? Dead on. Yeah. Is it right? Yeah, yeah. I'm not really you good with titles, it, bro. Um, but uh, because so, like, you hate Calvinists is basically what the book. No, is there's about. more to it than that. Calvin, I was a Calvinist for. Mm-hmm six, seven years, and then slowly transitioned out of it. So it's kind of the journey in and out of Calvinism. Yeah. Okay, like I said, so you hate Calvinists. Yeah, so you write a book helps. about it, but you work at a church where the other, what is the other guy's position? We're both lead pastors. Okay, so, so co-lead, co-lead pastor pastors is... He is a Calvinist. A Calvinist. Yeah, people ask all the time like how it's possible to make it work. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where it's really not complicated if you don't make it complicated like... You know, if he's preaching Romans 9 one week, let's say, 
he'd preach it the way he'd preach it. And then if I'm preaching Romans 9 the next week, I would preach it the way I preach it. And so we've kind of always thought if, you know, James and Paul can both make it in Scripture, yeah. then people who disagree about stuff like this can probably pastor a church together. We underestimate how much tension our people really can accept and tolerate and actually cherish is what we found. Our people enjoy it. Really? Mm-hmm. So if you say, you know, that that car accident wasn't God's plan. Uh, it's part of being in a broken world. And the next week he says, no, that's God's plan. Exactly. You're just like, all right, we're cool with the tension. Yeah. Well, we've, I mean, we've had to make it clear where when you're going to do diversity, you know, you can't just do, we'll only talk about lowest common denominator, right? That's the bad way to do it. And yeah. so instead we say, look, within the history of Christian faith, there've been a couple different ways to look at this that are just a part of orthodoxy. And they're very, very different. And we don't need to pretend that they're the same, but They've both been there, and so we have to learn how to worship and serve together even when we don't agree on this thing. Now, usually people say that if you don't, to have that opinion is, uh, to quote a title, beyond the bounds sure. of what a Orthodox Christian is, but yeah. there's flexibility on both sides to say they're both Orthodox positions? That's what I hear. That's been my position, yeah. Really? Well, that's what we tell, you know, like, um, so Dave, Dave's the name of our other lead pastor. He's mm-hmm. a Calvinist, um, but he's a really thoughtful low-key humble guy and so you know um he would agree that for the first at least 300 years of church history we don't really see anything that close to calvinism later augustine we start to move towards it and then it becomes a part of the tradition i mean i think it's a minority voice in the tradition properly understood um for those of us who grew up evangelical we wouldn't guess that because those are the waters we kind of swam in was more reformed um, but they're both there from the beginning. And so um, even though I disagree strongly with, with Calvinism, how could I ever deny that it's been a part of the tradition? And it is one way to interpret mm-hmm. the data we find in Scripture. You know, And that's frustrating. Uh, I, I wish God had been clearer, but God chose not to be so far as I can tell. And so I have to make space for voices like my other lead pastor, Dave, who reads the data in Scripture different than I do. Most of the time if we don't have not just the lowest common denominator the same, but like every denominator, yeah, like yeah. they all have to be the same. Otherwise we can't sure. do church together. And yeah. I really love the model and the example y'all set for being able to have plurality of opinions over. I think that it's a secondary issue, like how you yeah. understand those. Two. And I, I'm strongly in one camp. I, I believe I'm right. Sure. But I don't think I am the only one with a right to have an opinion on the issue. Yeah. But not like there aren't other church. Do you, are there other churches like, oh, yeah, this church is able to do this in the same way we are? Man, I, I mean, I'm sure we're not unique, but I haven't seen it a lot. Um, mm. And typically, so it's a non-denominational church. Yeah. There's strengths and weaknesses with that. One of the strengths is we don't have those stringent um, doctrinal prescriptions that would usually prevent something like that from happening. Uh, and so we've got a little more leeway where we've got people from a lot of different denominational backgrounds. And so when we all come together, it's just kind of like, you know what, it, it, it makes sense. And, and honestly, for us, it's kind of, it's a part of our mission in that like, you know, the mm-hmm. John 17, hey, the way the world will know that God sent Jesus is that Jesus came to make his followers one. And so mm-hmm. what we've always said is if Christians can't like worship together and be at the same church, even though they disagree about stuff, then the gospel's not credible. Mm-hmm. You know, like if the gospel can't really bring together people who disagree about Calvinism and classical theism, then how could the gospel possibly help to break down some of the barriers out in the world, racial barriers, yeah. um, political barriers? And so we've thought that it's like, it, for us, it's not just good manners, it's good theology is the way we say it. Yeah. You know, uh, a unity and diversity that's yeah. real. 
the, the person who wrote the foreword uh, for your new book, Brian Zahn, uh, I think he recently just tweeted about this. If the church can't be a witness to the rest of the world about reconciling when there is diversity, then what are we doing? Like, yeah. we should be a model of, oh, this is how Republicans and Democrats can do church together. Yep. This is how people who disagree on things can still take the sacraments together. Mm-hmm. And if we're not doing that, like, what really is the church's witness? It's, yeah. it, it's not much. Absolutely. Well, and in this particular point in history when things are so polarized, mm-hmm. what kind of more of a unique space could the church fill than a space where differences are truly transcended not not ignored like the differences are real and we try to be really honest about there are certain things we do not see eye to eye on but we can still take communion together and we can still sing together and we can still serve together and yeah yeah, yeah. how does it work out when you're doing the hospital visit when there's been a tragedy (laughs) yeah you know it's probably a thing where people ask for the the, the pastor they agree with. <laughs> yeah. Are you serious? Like people- oh, sure. I mean, there are certain, I mean, it's just like a known thing. Like we have, we have some folks who are hyper-reformed probably in, in our church. Now, they've probably been weaned off of some of that over the years. Like if they still made it this far, they're probably not as <laughs> hyper-reformed as they used to be. Um, but there are people who, yeah, I mean, they just know, like, so I'll give you an example. Uh, sadly, we had two children die over the last like two years. Okay. And so one of the families is certainly more reformed in their sensibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they knew, you know, if they asked me to do the, the funeral, um, that I would have a certain take on it that would not be God ordain your child's death for his glory, yada, yada, yeah. yada. So they asked Dave, the other pastor, to do it because that's the way they thought about it. And Dave wasn't heavy-handed with it at all. Like, that's not what you say at the funeral, obviously. He knows but, that. But that's the general mm-hmm. perspective that he's going to have on it. And that's fine. And I didn't begrudge them that like i totally get it that that's what brought them comfort another family um lines up more with where i'd be and so they asked me to do the funeral um Hmm. and so to answer your question yeah i just think on a gut level what we've been able to do is create a space where people on pretty different ends of the spectrum on some of those things can all feel at home and like they have a pastor who can be their pastor and meet them there I, yeah. I'm a big fan of that. Yeah. I really well, come like, on over. We could try three. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you guys could have your opinions. I could have the right yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. And there I think go. that'd be awesome. Uh-huh. Yeah. Instruments one Sunday, no instruments the next Sunday. Yeah, I could be the one who brings Fantastic. an acapella. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. As the good Church of Christ there would. Uh-huh. That would be outstanding. Okay. So your first book, you were like jettisoning Calvinism. Yeah. The second book, you're getting rid of like certainty to some degree. Sure. The next one, what are you going to get rid of? I don't know. Christ? That might be uh, a bridge too far. <laughs> okay, okay, we're not going to go there. Yeah, no, okay. no, we got to stop it somewhere. Okay. Um, so I had a friend back in college. Uh, his name was TJ. It still is his name, actually. And he's a musician. And I remember driving around one time in his car, and some song came on. And he goes, you know, I can tell it's a good song if I'm internally like jealous. Like, I wish I would have written that song. Like, I wish that was my song. And so I'm reading your book, and I'm like, there's some good stuff in here. And the subject matter is not substantially different from my book. And I was like, I wish my book would have come out first. <laughs> I was like, uh. Quick plug for Luke's book coming out October. <laughs> yeah, October 2nd. October 2nd. I'm sure yeah. it'll be awesome. I can't wait to get my copy. And then I'm going to come on Luke's podcast and interview Luke about his own book. I think that's just, I just invited myself to do that. But yeah. I feel like it's You're like the 10th person to do And we'll do, that. do it in my bedroom. We'll do it in your bedroom. <laughs> yeah, to make it just a little bit yeah, creepier. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think we could do it like in a hot tub. That would make it Sounds even more. Great. Cre- yeah. Sounds great. That's electrical issues and all that would be a problem. Okay, but I read your book and I was like, oh. Like, I think. I think there are a lot of people who are asking the questions that you're asking. Mm-hmm. And 
the things that you are going through seems to be kind of a rallying point for a lot of the conversations I've had with people who listen to this podcast. A lot of the stuff of you go to college and you're like this like cocksured, you know, I got Christianity kind of figured out, I've got all the answers, and yeah. you realize this doesn't work. And it's been kind of set up as like you have two options of like you're going to hold to these arguments or you're not going to hold on to faith at all. And that just doesn't, it doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't work at all. And so you have the experience, you go to college, uh, Mary Harden Baylor. Yeah. Right? Mary Harden Baylor. You're a ministry major or something like that. Yeah. Uh, ended up being a philosophy major by the okay. end of it. Yeah. Is there like a church program there? Is it, they're Baptist school, right? Yeah. It's a Baptist school. So there's like Christian studies, theology, philosophy, a couple other in that general religion department. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then seminary at? At uh, Baylor. So it's called Truett Seminary. Okay. At Baylor University. Nice. Um, so you're going there. You're the Calvinist, hardcore Calvinist guy. When you're getting there. In, in Going into my undergrad, I was. Started transitioning out my junior year in college. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And does the certainty kind of go hand in hand with the Calvinism for you? For me, it, it did. Um, I won't speak for all Calvinist everywhere, but I remember Piper one time saying something to the effect of there's a certain kind of mind that is drawn to Calvinism. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I certainly think one of the features of it is once you buy into the system of Calvinism, it really provides you with really clean lines of black and white, yeah. more so than some theologies. So I, I certainly think that certain minds drawn towards certitude find Calvinism very appealing. Not all, but I do think it tends to be a characteristic of Calvinist sensibilities is what I'd say. I would wonder if our Enneagram teachers could jump in and say there's yeah. certain numbers sure. that have an affinity for that. Oh, man. I would assume there's a lot of sixes yep. who really like mm-hmm. what Calvinism offers. Sixes, like I'm a one. and, and Oh, it, yeah, one, yeah. Once you, yeah, there are a lot of ways that um, kind of the central contours of Calvinism, you feel a lot of synergy as a one. It provides you with that. Mm-hmm. Again, once you, you bind to the system, everything locks into place. And mm-hmm. it's hard. Some of it's hard to accept, but you still have really clean lines for where all the doctrines go. It's this fully furnished house with a place for everything once you walk into the house. Yep. Yeah. Which, as a seven, I'd also be aware that I would never like that naturally because yeah. the, the house is already fully furnished and yeah. I just have to walk in, yeah. which leads me to be aware of the fact that I would, just as I could say a number is prone to this sort of theology, I would be just as unlikely to jump into that. And Very so, true. I mean, we're all influenced by a plethora of things that cause us to make yeah. every decision, including yeah. the theologies that we ascribe to. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, uh, junior year, it's kind of falling apart mm-hmm. and w- w- are you involved in church? Are you leading in any way at this point? Have you decided you're going to be a preacher? Man, so I, I knew I, I probably wanted to do some sort of ministry, but when it really started falling apart, um, you know, I, I didn't know. Like, it, it got to the point where I was wondering if I could do the job with integrity anymore. And at that point, so for me, there were kind of two different crises of faith. So there was one in undergrad when I'm transitioning out of Calvinism. <clears throat> and, and when I felt like I was moving away from Calvinism, Calvinism was... Um, what brought me like into fully mature Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And it's all I knew. So I didn't think in terms of I'm letting go of Calvinism. I thought in terms of like I'm letting go of my faith. It yeah. felt that severe to me. Mm-hmm. Um, slowly came to see that there were some other options there. Um, and then the other crisis of faith came later. You know, this was just like three or four years ago probably. 
And so I'm like all in. I mean, I'm graduated. I'm at the church I'm at now. Mm-hmm. And through some specific events, but also just kind of that low-grade nagging skepticism, um, I really thought I was going to become like a pastor who didn't believe in God anymore. And hmm. there's this great story, and um, I don't know if you've read Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry. Hmm. Um, anyways, there's this one section where it's this kid, he thinks he's called to ministry. Um, he has these really nagging doubts, though, and he tries to go talk to people about it. And finally, he goes to this one professor, and he just says, hey, you know, I got all these doubts, and list them all off. The professor's like, yeah, those are tough. And then he goes, well... I don't know how I can be a pastor if I don't believe in any of these things. And the professor just says, yeah, how could you? And <laughs> that's what he realizes that, you know, he feels like he mistook the call and he's not supposed to be a pastor. And yeah. I remember having that moment like, man, I don't know if I can keep doing this. I may have to find something else to do. Because I would have some days where I get up and preach and I didn't believe what I was, what I was saying, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and that's kind of the journey the book was birthed out of. Like, how do you get to that point and find a path forward yeah um you you tell a story about uh so your your son calls the dogs like piper is the name of our dog which yeah. is like fitting in, in yeah, light of your it's not named after john piper i realize I mean, how ironic that is that would be pretty cool if it was i'm turning the fan off while i'm walking but um so your your son thinks all dogs are called piper yeah like that dog is just equals piper yeah and that's kind of a fitting metaphor that most people think of. Like Christianity is just this one flavor that I have of mm-hmm. it. And if I don't have that, then yeah. I'm done with, done with all of it. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like it's an all or nothing game for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's probably one of the themes that people have realized, oh, this is why I listen to these people because they're giving me other options. Yeah. Why do people typically do the same thing like your kid did with the dog? Like this is the only option that there is for me. Man. That's a great question. Um, as a as a pastor, I think one of the things we do is we realize people want simplicity, mm-hmm. which is good. Um, but sometimes, again, we underestimate how much ambiguity people can bear and need. And so to make things simple for people, I think sometimes we don't let them understand that. Let's say this is the way we do things at my church. But there are a variety of ways to live out Christian faith that have connected with different people for various reasons over various centuries. Mm -hmm. And I think at a certain point, it becomes important for people to know that there are numerous ways to do this thing. And what they grew up in might not be, the faith they grew up in might not be the faith that's able to sustain them through a lifetime. And sometimes it is, but for a lot of us, our faith has to evolve into something else. And that doesn't mean that like, our evolutions look different, I guess is what I'm saying. There are folks who are super conservative and they need to move some towards something more progressive but i've met a lot of people a lot of people in my church grew up very progressive and they needed to move towards something more conservative and yeah. so i think i used to be pretty prescriptive about what it had to look like but you get older and you just realize man um life is brutal and faith feels almost impossible sometimes and so whatever you can find that keeps you in the game and keeps you faithful to christ is a live option um, but I don't think you realize that until you get out in the world and just feel its brutality and ambiguity yeah. and realize how hard it is for some people to keep their faith. Yeah. And that's the thing about the grieving parent who wants someone with a different view on adversity and suffering. Mm-hmm. Younger Luke would have wanted, no, this is the right way to do it because then it'll be so much better for you to connect to God. Um, older Luke realizes life can be really difficult. And if this is helping you get through it, and 
there's a history of people believing this kind of stuff in the church. Who am I yeah. to discredit the way that God is working in your life? Because mm-hmm. I'm aware that like, I could be wrong about these things. Yeah. And I think that is, to steal a title from Greg Boy, like that is the benefit of the doubt, is mm-hmm. that it theoretically would give you humility. Yeah. And so a lot of times we try to get rid of these doubts, but they, like they don't. And there's the Wendell Berry line, which I couldn't source, therefore didn't make it in my book. But the line that I, it's been ascribed to him where he said, uh, I tried to let go of my doubts, but my doubts never let go of me. So I swear that's in Jaber Crow somewhere. Uh, and it's, it's the kid who, you know, he thinks I, he yeah. wants to be a pastor and he's sorting through. Yeah, and, I, and I think that's a great metaphor, too, for like what the crisis of faith is for a lot of people. Well, thanks for giving me that, like, you're you know, welcome. a couple months ago we'll when I, could, I really needed yeah. it. Uh, hopefully your manuscript's not, com- well, it probably is at this point. It's, yeah, you can't touch it. No. Your editors would hate you. Um, no, like when, when people have a crisis of faith a lot of time, it's not like a rebel, an intentional rebellion. It's not that you leave your faith. It's you feel that your faith is leaving you. Yeah. And it's not in your control. Like you've, you've seen things and you've experienced things and you hate it. Mm-hmm. And you wish you could go back mm-hmm. to the way it felt before, how simple it felt before. But once the crisis of faith hits, you can't like regain your naivety. Like there's a path forward you have to take. It's not something you chose. And again, you feel like your faith is leaving you, not that you wanted to leave your faith. And I think that's what a lot of people don't understand uh, about people who are dealing with doubts is it's not an intentional, necessarily sinful thing. It's just the hand they've been dealt and they have to be faithful with it. Yeah. And pretending and, like it's not there is not going to work. Yeah, and, and not everyone has this. I think no. there's almost like, there are a lot of people who have the construction, deconstruction, reconstruction. That's, that's great. That's been my story. That's obviously your story, but it's not everyone's story. But what I think is everyone's story is the fact that it is not static. Like there's always going to be some sort of movement. Yeah. And so in the foreword, which Brian Zahn wrote for you, did a great job on the mm-hmm. foreword. He talked about wanting to build a faith for his grandkids. Yeah. And so your kids, you have two boys mm-hmm. under the age of four, and you're trying to like to prescribe a faith for them. How are you trying to set a template where they know like, the stuff that you start with, it's not going to be what you finish with. Yeah. And what you begin with is great to get you going, but it's, it's probably not going to be the thing that gets you to finish the race? Mm-hmm. Great question. Um, when I look at my boys and, and my church, you know, too, what I really try to communicate to them is when you look in, in Scripture even, um, you see people wrestling and struggling through their faith and that this isn't like a recent POMO, postmodern phenomenon where all of a sudden we're all doubting all the tenets of Christianity. That from the very beginning this willingness to wrestle with God about things that are really, really difficult was an essential part of what it meant to be a Christian, mm-hmm. you know. But, you know, the story of Jacob wrestling with God, Job is obviously a story that, that I look at in the book where you see Job, Job's rebellion against his faith is an expression of his faith, right? Because if, if Job didn't care, he would have just walked away from it all. But he yeah. refused to let go. He says terrible things about God. But by God, he's talking to God about God. And he just refuses to let it go. His friends want him to let it go, but he won't. And Job's fighting for his faith. He's not leaving his faith. And so that's what I want my church and my little boys to see is that um, when the doubts hit, because they probably will, the only way forward is to be honest about them and not push them down. Because if you're not honest with them and you push them down, your doubts know 
and they write you out from the inside has been my experience. So when I see people walk away from faith, it's not because they had doubts. It's because they had doubts that they refused to be honest about. I've seen very few people walk away who are honest about their doubts. Yeah, I think so. The thing about Job, like he was at least talking to God. I I love that. It's like the the thing about like that. If your high school football coach or your basketball guy, if your your basketball coach stops yelling at you, it's not a good sign. It means they've given up on you. But not all of us have the ability to keep on staying in the conversation when you don't have good things to say. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like the same thing of when you can't be honest, in some ways it's almost like you're not having the conversation at all. And okay, so last week uh, on the podcast, uh, Aaron Nikos was on and he was telling a similar story. Like he got to a point where he was a worship pastor and he just didn't feel like singing these songs anymore. His faith wasn't making sense. He was like the sadness because of, Faith wasn't working. That's your story. Why are there more pastors who are who are having this now? Who are having this experience? Do you think it's more that are having it, or just more comfortable to talk about it now? Man, in general, like I, I've asked the question, just you know, obviously doubt and unbelief is on the rise. You know, if you look at studies over the last hundred years, mm-hmm. and I've wondered, like, what? Why is that? You know, there's this general idea that, like, science, but science properly understood hasn't really conflicted with a single tenet of Orthodox Christian faith, right? And so what? why are people moving away from faith? I really think it's um, we just bear the burden of the world in a way that our ancestors didn't, by which I mean we're just more aware of the world, the suffering of the world. We're more aware of other religions. We have so much more information to sort through than our great-great-great-great-grandparents did who interacted with like three people each week, like them and the farm down the road and we interact with thousands hundreds of thousands of people every single day and so we're sorting through so much more information than we ever did before and i just think we feel paralyzed by it all um and so as that paralysis sets in we realize we can never be as certain as perhaps we thought in previous generations uh it's kind of a a moment where you realize well i'm gonna bs this and pretend like i'm (laughs) certain or i'm gonna get honest about my doubts and, and deal with them yeah. And if you want to stay in the game, you're going to get honest about them because you'll walk away if you're not sooner or later. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. How does this affect your preaching? Like, mm-hmm. how, how do you, do you preach different now than you did? So you said three or four years ago, you had the yeah. crisis. Preaching now compared to five or six years ago. Oh, um, <clears throat> so yeah, five or six years. Well, let's say when, when the crisis kind of hit, um, I got, you know, certainly a little more uncertain in in my preaching, I think it'd be fair to say. Like, I just didn't lean into certain things as much. And so what I had to do is get to a place where um, I referenced Dostoevsky a number of times in the book. Um, Dostoevsky has this kind of hypothetical situation um, where he asks, hey, if it was revealed to you in a way you couldn't dispute that Jesus was not the truth, would you choose Jesus or would you choose the truth? And that's kind of, you know, worst case scenario. Um, And I got to a place where I knew that certainty wasn't going to be in the cards for me. Like I'd Mm -hmm. done as much work as I could with the intellectual problems and with the emotional problems and doubt's always a mix of both. And I I realized certainty wasn't in the cards. And so I kind of came to this place where I'd ask myself, I'm never going to be certain about it. Given that... what I want to do. And my conclusion at the end of it all was, you know, I'd rather be wrong about Jesus than write about anything else. Hmm. It's almost like a reverse Pascal's wage, yep. you know? So Pascal, Hey, if there's, you believe in God and there's no God, you ain't really lost anything. 
Uh, yeah. If you don't believe in God and there is a God, there, there could be hell to pay. <laughs> you yeah, know? So yeah, yeah. Uh, make your wager you know, appropriately. And this is just kind of a reverse Pascal's wager, saying, man, even if you know, Christianity proves to not been the truth, I still think following Jesus is the most beautiful way to live my life. Mm-hmm. And that gave me like enough momentum to start moving forward again. And I compare it to kind of the walking on water. Like you're in the boat, you're looking out at it. Man, I never walked on water before. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't look like it's going to hold me, but you get just enough momentum. And for me, it was the beauty of Christian faith that got me out moving towards the water. And once you get on the water, uh, I don't know, it, it just it makes sense and you find some stability. You know, and that's an Augustine quote I use in the book. God, my desire is not to be more certain of you, but more stable in you. Yeah. And that was kind of the approach that moved me forward again. Yeah. yeah. How do you move from certainty to beauty? What helps you transition yeah. from yeah. clinging to certainty instead of like embracing beauty? <laughs> um, for me, it was honesty. Again, you know, certainty would be great, but I just, Not it seems to me that, yeah, we should just all be able to own up to the fact that God could have made things clearer, but chose not to, or couldn't given the sort yeah. of world God wanted, yeah, yeah. however we want to explain it. And so given that that's the case, um, you just kind of have to realize that certainty won't be the thing that grounds your faith. Um, it's not honest to say it is. And so where do you go from there? And for me, again, and, you know, Christianity is rooted in there was this dude who lived, you know, 2,000 years ago, and his life had such moral beauty and power that it literally moved from being this little thing where there's like, you know, man, I don't know what, 50 people probably all told following him around to the ancient Middle East. But he lived a life that was so beautiful that it has quite literally changed the world. And it's almost impossible for us to look back and understand how much Jesus changed the world. David Bentley Hart talks a lot about the moral eruption of Christian faith, that we just literally think about morality in a way that was not possible before Jesus came along. And so once you realize how beautiful Jesus is and, and the way Jesus changed the world, it becomes, I don't know, the most natural thing imaginable to stake your faith on that. If I'm going to stake my faith on anything, it's that Jesus is beautiful mm-hmm. and a life spent following him is the most beautiful way for me to spend this life even if I ended up being wrong about it. Yeah. And then that's when you get to a faith that isn't indestructible, but man, it's, it's pretty hard to imagine walking away from it at that point. Yeah, agreed. Because heaven and hell aren't the deciding factors. It's right here and right now the beauty of, of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I've heard uh, Richard Beck talk about, like I'm agnostic about the afterlife. And so if it works out like that's a great thing. Now, I, I don't know if I'm going to say that in a sermon ever. Sure. No, but, probably not. But if it's, what I can concretely build on is that there's beauty in Jesus and that what Jesus people have done since then has continued to be like some, like some terrible things, but also some really amazingly beautiful things. Mm -hmm. And anyone who read uh, Ortberg's Jesus, who is this man has ripped off a chapter two in which he goes through all those things. You're like, Oh yeah, I like, I want to, I want to be a part of that. But like acknowledge like there's beauty here, but there's also things that like, I don't have it all. And you, you have this conversation. I think you were probably like an undergrad and it sounded like you weren't ready to really do the, like the right move in this conversation. I think you said that, but some, some guy who's an atheist said something to the extent of uh, like, tell me your, the things that you like about Christianity, the things that you struggle with, yeah. because if you're not human enough to acknowledge those things, then like the conversation's not going to be worthwhile. Something like that. Yeah. Is that somewhat yeah. accurate I, the story? Absolutely. Um, I've always thought, I think we think that being honest about our doubts would, um, you know, alienate people, people we're trying to convince about the faith, et cetera. But in my experience, um, it's our pseudo certainty that alienates people 
more than our doubts. How so? Like, have you seen you know? that? So, like, let's say that, that guy I was talking to, and I experience people like this a lot. Um, you know, people are smart, and they know that there's no way you could be certain about this Christianity deal. Mm-hmm. So when you act like you are, they just call BS, and they don't think you're honest enough to have an honest conversation with it. Yeah. But when you're honest about it, you say, hey, man, you know, like, at the end of the day, I think there's a lot of compelling evidence to believe that Jesus was resurrected or, you know, that, uh, I mean, on down, like, Christianity is beautiful. Um, but I acknowledge that, man, I, I can't give you a bulletproof case. Obviously, I can't. Some of the smartest people in the world do not believe in God, and that's, you know, a plain fact. Once you acknowledge that, I just think people click in and go, oh, this person's honest. And if they were able to have doubts and still find a way to follow Jesus, then, maybe I can too. yeah, maybe I can do the same thing. And so one of the things I say in the book is the world, I think, is more infuriated by the hypocrisy of our certainty than they are the hypocrisy of our morality. Like what I think really frustrates mm-hmm. people who aren't Christians sometimes, it's not that Christians, you know, aren't perfect, like they get that we all fall. It's that we pretend that we're certain. I think that's what pisses people off more than a lot of the morality stuff, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. I mean it seems like you know, we talk about wanting to like be friends with someone who's not a Christian or we want to witness to them. But if your own friendship doesn't entail you actually being a human. It's not really a friendship. And whatever you're witnessing to, if it doesn't come from a place of genuine humanity, Mm -hmm. then like, like what are you witnessing about? It's just, it's nothing. There's nothing compelling about that. No, that's so a story I tell in in chapter one of the book is um, it's, it's actually the great commission, you know, and the disciples go up, they see Jesus on the mountain and we're told that, um, they saw him and they worshiped him, but still doubted. Yeah. And I, you know, dude, I've heard that story so many times, but it was only a couple of years ago that that like sank in on me. Well, you got these, these guys, they're literally looking into the eyes of the resurrected mm-hmm. Christ mm-hmm. and they worship, but they still doubt. Mm-hmm. Right? How is it possible to see? Like, most of us think that would be the thing. Like, if I could just see resurrected Jesus, I'd be fine. I would never mm-hmm. have a doubt for the rest of my life. But the apostles saw the resurrected Christ and they still doubted. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus built his church on these apostles who looked at him resurrected and still doubted. Yeah. And so, just one of the questions I've always asked is how is it possible that, that, that people don't know that story? Mm-hmm. That Jesus built his church on these people who were worshiping doubters, you know? And so, that's what. I think grieves me is that you got all these people who think faith is not in the cards for them because they can't be certain, mm-hmm. but they don't need to make that decision. They don't have to choose between Jesus and doubt. You know? No, they just need to see that Jesus is beautiful enough to take the next step towards him. Yeah. And then the next step and the next. And if you've never heard that story, you can obviously buy Austin's book or you can yeah. wait two months and it's also in my oh, book. And I talked no. about it. It's talking about it in my book too. No. But you have the thing about. Um, We're the only two people to ever catch that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's not like Rob Bell had it in a <laughs> podcast two years ago and that's where I, I first I, I didn't listen. But um, he. No, no, but you and there. You have a read on the translation for that. Yeah. I'd never heard before yeah. where you said often we think of it as like, okay, so there are 10 people who believe and there's one doubter. Thomas. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But what your other read was? Yeah. Um, so it's not that some are worshiping and some are doubting. It's that they all worship and they all doubt. Um, you know, there's a little bit of debate there, but I think you can make a really good case that what the Greek's trying to communicate there is not some worship, some doubt. It's that they all worship even though they're all unsure, which yeah. is probably, I think, what the Greek says. They worshiped even though they're unsure. Yeah. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that is most compelling to me at church is people when they're unsure if they really 
have gotten exactly what they want, unsure if they got a fair shake in life, unfair if the, the hand that they've been dealt is what they want, but they still show up. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, a guy named Jason Michelli uh, who wrote a book called Cancer is Funny. Yeah. And he, yeah. Do you know Jason? Uh, I know I'm, I'm going on his podcast like in two weeks. Are you really? I read a little bit of, yeah, Cancer is Funny. Yeah, Jason's Okay, well, fantastic. so his best line uh, that he had on my podcast um, cause I, I haven't read his book yet, but, um, like I, <laughs> Glad like, to know I'm not the only one I, I meant to, like it's sitting out yeah. on my shelf, but, um, he talked about on my podcast that, uh, his community robbed him of cynicism. Yeah. And I think like, that's the beautiful, one of the beautiful things about Christianity is yep. that you, you're a part of a church and you go, I see what you've gone through and you're still showing up. Mm-hmm. And so I have these intellectual issues that I'm wrestling with and it doesn't make sense to me and I can't put it all together. But I see that you're worshiping the midst of these real terrible situations. Mm-hmm. And my intellectual issues are very substantial to me. But in light of the real life trauma that you've gone through, it pales in comparison. Mm-hmm. And so you, it's almost like the idea of there are people who are worshiping and doubting at you know Jesus, the resurrected Jesus there. It's, but somehow all of their faith is kind of like shared with one another. And yep. like worship is almost like... We're, we're worshiping to God, but we're also worshiping for one another. Mm-hmm. And some of us in moments of strength are doing it and others are in moments of weakness, but mm-hmm. somehow we all rally together and community can really rob us of that cynicism. Yeah. I think that's beautifully said. And that's like looking back, you know, once you write a book, you always look back a few months later and you're like, God, it, that it should have been so much better. Like I would have <laughs> added this and that. And that's one of the, honestly, the, the things that looking back, I wish I'd put more in the book is, yeah, there are times where, the community has faith for you. Um, and there's a helpful way to go through the motions. You know, like a lot of times we're really hard on people who just go through the motions. Yeah. But there is a healthy way to go through the motions that is you staying in the game and being faithful to these habits that long-term will keep you in faith even when you don't feel like it. Yeah. Right? And that's the thing, right, is, is practicing faith when you don't feel like it because you won't a lot of the time. And that's what the community does for us is it keeps us in the game when we don't feel like it. Yeah, yeah. I've got a friend who's a pastor and so he had lost one child, um, and then his youngest son was in a car accident, didn't know if he was going to make it. And he was still a preacher at that point. Mm-hmm. And the kid next to him in the car had passed away. Mm-hmm. And this is a, like a church trip, and you know, mm-hmm. so the whole church is involved in the story. And he talked about how he would get up and pray on Sunday, and sometimes that was the only time he was praying. Yeah. And... I used to naively think, oh, well, that's because you're being fake. And now, as I realize the weight of life, I realize that's the power of disciplines and practices that, Mm -hmm. like, I I don't feel like showing up, but I'm going to continue to do this because this is who I am. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of that. You probably use this story in your book, too. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, the dad who who brings the little boy who's demon-possessed to Jesus and Jesus and the disciples come down from the mountain, and the disciples can't cast the demon out. And I didn't use this one. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, 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 Jesus says, you know, talks to his father, and he says, you know, Father, well, the father says, Jesus, if you can, heal my boy. And Jesus mm-hmm. says, if I can, you know, do you believe, Father? And the father says, well, I do believe, but help my unbelief, which is essentially the same thing as saying, I do believe and I don't believe. You, you know, know, that's what he's, I, I, yeah, you know, yeah, I kind of believe, but help. I also don't believe, so I need you to help my unbelief. And that is a place that a lot of us have to get to, is to just be able to say to God, look, I kind of believe and I kind of don't believe, mm-hmm. and um, I need you to come through for me. Yeah. You know, and I, I've been at that place numerous times, and God has always come through not 
as directly as I would have liked. Um, but there's something about that prayer um, and getting to that place where you just say, look, God, I, I don't have faith in me. And there's a point at which I think God has to be expected to actually be God. Yeah. Or else you just start to feel like maybe you're like making it up, mm-hmm. you know, and you're, you're making up all these arguments and evasions for God that God can't be bothered to do for God's self. And I think as a pastor, sometimes you feel that. Like, I'm having to come up with all these fancy arguments and illustrations mm-hmm. because God can't be bothered to help these people. Yeah. You know, and that's just that nagging sense you get. And, and sometimes you just need God to come through and actually you make you feel like you're not making it all up. Yeah. Yeah, you do. And that's the move. I think that's the second naivete of mm. like mysticism to see God around you and to be aware that like there, there's some stuff that like doesn't really always line up, but it's something transcendent in the moment. And I, I think that's for, for me, it's like one of the, the ways that beauty is more compelling than certainty is mm-hmm. that the beauty of seeing those things. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So you have bitten your book about someone comes up to you after you're preaching about this and they quote the Hebrews 11 text, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we can't see. Mm-hmm. Um, the word certain's in there. Yeah. So shouldn't you be certain about faith? I, I, I love your response to that. Yeah, so um, it was a very well-meaning and smart person. Um, and what we did was just look at, you know, Hebrews 11 is the kind of hall of great faith chapter. We've got all these heroes of the faith. And so you get that description of what faith is, but then the rest of the chapter is a description of people who actually embodied whatever Hebrews 11 one is talking about. And so you got Abraham. Was Abraham a man of certain faith? Ugh, you know, he tried to pawn off his wife a couple times because he didn't think God could be trusted to come through. And yeah. then you got Moses. Moses literally argues like with a burning bush <laughs> because he thinks God has the wrong God. Jacob, for the love of God, you know, Don't Jacob. Just, yeah, you know, so um, Hebrews 11 one says, yeah, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the certainty of things not seen. But what exactly does that mean? You get into Hebrews 11 and you see that whatever Hebrews 11 one is talking about, it's not talking about certainty. It's talking about a willingness to act despite not having certainty, you know? And so when you flesh it out, and again, that's just good kind of biblical exegesis for our listeners, is you can't just hang on one line. You got to let the chapter actually flesh out what the one line is supposed to mean. Yeah. And whatever it is, it ain't certainty the way we've come to understand it in the modern world. No, no, I like that. Um, I thought that was a good take on it. Let, let's look, let's let the chapter define what exactly certainty looks like. Yeah. And it's a lot more complex than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, man, I feel like this is this podcast. It's uh, I feel like it's worth the wait. Like I think this is paid off. I'm glad that you never became a professional basketball player, but instead became a pastor. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how well your church pays you. They probably pay the same as yeah. You know, just like you, I make around six, seven figures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a lot of with a few decimals. Yeah, we're counting pennies, right? Yeah, That's yeah. what we're doing. Yeah. yeah. Well. uh Right on. So this is good. I'm glad that we finally uh, did this. Absolutely, man. It was a blast, and uh, I can't wait to interview you. Yeah, I mean, it's basically you just ask me every question that I ask you about your book. You got it, man. The same. Uh huh. But you at least got to market first. Like, so your your book is going to corner the market for. So when did you write your book? When did you finish your book? Um, that's a good question. I think I turned it in. Oh, I know exactly when I turned it because I shaved my head afterwards. Okay. Uh, like a Nazarene vow or something like that. <laughs> like a reverse. Uh-huh. And then I shaved it and they're like, hey, we need a new bio picture for the back of the book. And I was like, yeah, about that. Um, Here's one from six years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's my senior picture. Um, <laughs> no, it was last fall, like last October I turned it in. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's mine. Mine was probably like two and a half years ago that I finished it. 
<laughs> and then, yeah, so there are moments where I'll go back and read it, and I'm like, oh, Wait, like, I forgot I said that. You, you went back and revised it? Yeah, so Luke and I talked pre-recording about Enneagram numbers, so I'm a one, which means the first draft I turn in is actually like the 50th draft that's <laughs> gone through my brain. It's so... I went over it so many times, and, and people publish in different ways. Like, I always, being a pastor, it was hard for me to work with deadlines, like it may be for you. And so mm-hmm. mine was more, I write the book, and then after I'm done with it, take it to a publisher so that I don't have to deal with compressed time frames. So I was in no hurry, got it ready, got it to where I liked it, and then finally took it to publish. But yeah, it was probably two, at least two years ago when I kind really? of finished it. Yeah. Wait, wait, tell me your thing about deadlines. Well, I mean, I just, you know, I don't know what your schedule is like, but for me, it's hard to have like, hey, you've got six months to write this book. I, I, there's a possibility I could get it done in three months, but there's a possibility it'll be two years before I could get it done. Like, it's just tough to predict. You're Brian Zahn, disciple. That's because... BZ does actually do that. After my first, it's what I did with my first book, but that was because I didn't know I was writing a book. Like, I was just putting some stuff together. It became mm-hmm. a book. Talked to Brian afterwards, and he was like, yeah, man, I don't... I don't do the whole deadline, publisher, tell me this, that. I write the book, I send it to some publishers, and then, you know, it's just much easier for me. <laughs> the, I don't want to say hubris, but the, uh, the, um, the sense of self. Yeah that, yeah, that comes from being in your 50s and yeah. like doing this thing for a while. And you're like, I, I know what I am. I'm not Brian's gonna. a confident man in yeah. a good way. Yeah, yeah. he knows who, who he is. Yeah. Good for him. Yeah, yeah I, I'm not afraid of deadlines. Like, they help me. Like, I like oh, knowing no. exactly when it's supposed to be. And That's because you're not a one. But I, you probably need a deadline. No. <laughs> Maybe a little bit? No? I, like, I am the most routine okay seven okay. you'll ever meet which Fair means enough. i live in anxiety more than yeah. every seven should but yeah. I, I anyway I, I like deadlines that's just me but i know like greg boyd is like 13 years late on a book <laughs> yeah, i don't doubt it at all that's so uh, greg he was gonna he, he endorsed my first book very graciously he was gonna endorse this one but he was like yeah i've got you know like 16 books i'm supposed to have written and it's just gonna be tough for me to read and endorse your book so completely understandable man yeah the endorsement thing i um that, that, it, Isn't that of, the worst part? It's of weird because a book. you're basically saying, yeah. "Hey, you're really famous yes. and you're popular. Yep. Help me have a little bit of your popularity. I have nothing to give you in return, mm. but yeah, it, let me trade in on a little bit of that. Yeah, I, like I've endorsed a few people's book, and I'm very honored to do that. Oh, absolutely, because I haven't been asked like a billion times to do it. Like yeah. some of the people that I, I asked. just laugh when people ask me to endorse it. Because I'm like, do you know what an endorsement's for? Like, yeah, I'm not doing that. For no, you. I'm not a big enough deal. But no, yeah, it's a weird publishing is a weird thing because it starts off as this is me expressing my faith, and I want to share this with the world because this is God's work in my life, and I want to. And then it becomes, well, how big's your platform? Oh, yeah. And um, who can you have yep. help you? And it's just a weird, it's a yeah. weird thing because you go from like this pure thing to this. Yeah, I just, I feel kind of dirty. Oh, getting the endorsements is by far the worst part of writing a book. Yeah. You know, because you have to reach out to these people, some of whom you, you know, but then you got to reach out to a lot of people you really don't know. Mm-hmm. It's a cold, hard power grab for some of their status to help the book sell, you know, and they had to have somebody else do it for them. So that's what I tell myself to not feel too bad mm-hmm. about it. Um, but it's definitely the toughest part about writing a book. And you always feel a little dirty about it, mm-hmm. as you should. That's, that's okay. Well, thank you. I, I I feel the same way you do. Luke didn't ask me to endorse his book. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't ask each other to endorse each other's books, which I guess is something. No, this is me being passive aggressive. You never offered <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. to endorse mine, yeah. so I'm now yeah. mad about it. No, Austin, I'm glad we did this, and uh, the book's good. I hope people go buy it. Thanks, man. So, well done. 
Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.